I just want to praise God this morning that I feel far more rested and refreshed than I thought I would after five days of sports camp. <laughs> I thought I'd be crawling up here, so that's all God. And uh, it was a joy doing five days of sports camp with the kids. We had 60 kids here. In my group, only one went to church out of the 10, so it was cool. I think there's only about 15 church kids out of the 60 kids, and uh, we got to tell them about Jesus and everything, and it was just the whole weekend was a blessing, except for one time when I overheard one of the kids, because uh, there's like the main coach, the lead coach in the group, and then there's a helper coach, and one of the kids I overheard saying, ask the old coach. <laughs> like, ouch. Like, I'm right here. I can hear you saying that. I have a name. But yeah, no doubt, I'm the old coach. Yeah, so anyway, good to be here. Good to be sharing the word again this morning. Um, We're continuing in our series. We only have a couple more left. I'm going to insert one more. There was one more left, but I think I might insert one more doctrine into our doctrine series. But we are on uh, the doctrine of the world, and as I usually do at the start of these, uh, give you some extra material if you want to go deeper into this, because all we can really look at in 35 minutes or so are sort of foundational or first principles on any given doctrine. So if you want some extra material on the world, uh, in our concise theology book that every family and household should have by now, and if you don't have a concise theology book by J.I. Packer, come see me. Uh, Page 234 is the world, Uh, page 223 is mission, and page 105 is enterprise, and all three of those kind of speak to what we're talking about today. Prior sermons, again, if you go all the way back to 2013, uh, Be Shrewd Stewards is a good sermon on the world, and a little closer to the present day in 2018, parable number seven, The Rich Man's Barns. And then finally, if you want to go even further into this, there's a free ebook by John Piper, Risk is Right. It's better to risk your life than waste it. And you can get that at Desiring God and just download it for free. And uh, so just before we begin on looking at the doctrine of the world and what Christians need to understand about what the Bible tells us about the world, I just want to open up in prayer. Father God, we thank you that we have your word. We thank you that we have scripture, both Old and New Testaments, and that both speak of your goodness and your grace, both speak of your plan of redemption, both speak truth into our lives and teach us as disciples how we are to view and live in every facet of our lives. And so this morning I ask that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and would reveal in our hearts where we stand and what our posture is towards the world and how your word and your love would refine us and correct us and where you would encourage us in how we engage with the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Some Christians understanding of the world or their doctrine of the world would go something like this. God created it good. It fell into sin. We're leaving it anyway, and it's all going to burn in the end. Now, all of those statements are true, and a lot of Christians subconsciously or unconsciously kind of live that way. Uh, you know, we're saved now, we're leaving, this is all going to burn, we're told it's just going to keep getting worse anyway, so why care about it? And we are sort of subconsciously either antagonistic towards the world or indifferent towards the world. 
Some Christians, unfortunately, and I've met and spoken with them, don't think that subconsciously. That literally is the doctrine of the world that they hold and live out in their Christian faith. And what I mean by that is because it was created good and it's fallen into sin and we're leaving anyway and it's all going to burn, why care about the environment? Why do anything about it? The world is here for us to take. God provided the world. We'll take what we need and it's all getting destroyed in the end anyway. The world is full of sinners, and God is going to deal with them, and so why would I care about what happens to people in the world? Because God is sorting all of that out, and I'm leaving anyway. And that's very selfish and callous, but as I said, unfortunately, I've met Christians whose doctrine of the world is actually expressed that way, whether subconsciously or unfortunately consciously. But it is important, then, that we understand what our right stance towards the world is, because I am going to suggest this morning that the Bible does tell us a little bit more about what the doctrine of the world should be in between it falling and it burning. And there's something about the world for us as disciples to know about the world. And why would it be important for us as disciples to know about the world and what's important in it? Well, I think there's lots of ways of looking at that, but most obviously, I'll phrase it this way, when I wake up in the morning and during every part of my experience from breakfast to bedtime, I am, and I presume you are as well, operating in the world as a disciple. I cannot escape the world. It influences me and I influence it all the time. It's literally the environment that we live in as physical people and the environment in which we live out our life as disciples. So I would propose that if, as disciples of Jesus, we were to somehow find ourselves engaging with the world incorrectly, then that would mean we would pretty much mess up everything that's expected of us as disciples and the influence that we are meant to have. Because if we get things in the world wrong and interact with the world wrong, then we are not discipling correctly. And I mean our family, our community, our politics, our use of resources, our finances, our health, our time, both on a personal and on a national or global scale. If Christians engage incorrectly with the world, then we will behave incorrectly as disciples. And God knows how important and prevalent the world is to us and our well-being. He created it and created us to be in it. And he knows that our interaction with the world is critical to our discipleship and our life as Christians. And so it's not surprising that God then tells us how to keep ourselves engaged with the world correctly. And as we've been talking about in doctrines on several occasions, the Bible teaches us as believers, as disciples, how not to fall into a ditch on either side of the road. On one hand, there's a ditch that we can love the world in the wrong way. One ditch, we elevate our engagement with the world too high, and and the world becomes our idol, and the things of the world become our hope and our purpose, and we put our hope and our purpose in the world ahead of God. On the other hand, there's a ditch that says that we ignore or we eliminate or we abuse our engagement with the world to our own detriment and to God's dishonor. In other words, we fail to love the world correctly as we are meant to love it. So we are to love the world, but not love the world that way, but do love the world this way. And you'll see what I mean as we get into it. So how do Christians then learn? It is important that we know how do we interact with the world around us. How do Christians learn to have the right kind of love and the right stance or what I'll call the right posture towards the world? How should we stand towards it? 
What does the Bible say about the world and our place in it? And this is just going to lay the foundation, or what we're going to talk about this morning are just first principles of how a Christian interacts with the world. And there are lots of principles, literally hundreds of principles that come out of these first principles, but I'm going to try to give you the four basic foundational principles that we need to understand first and foremost, and then we can build other principles on these foundations. First of all, the first principle is that God cares about his physical world, and by this I mean creation and stewardship. The Bible tells us that the world... God gave us the world, and God gave us bodies, and he gave us a command to care for what he gave us. And in discipleship terms, we always talk about that care for what God has given us as stewardship. And that's the first way in which we love the world rightly. God gives us this place and this task as the very first thing in Genesis chapter 1, verse 25 and following. He begins, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So you can just imagine now if if, if human beings, if, if people had just remained as God intended then the first principle is that being a people would virtually be equivalent with being a world caretaker, with being an earth steward, with being a planet keeper. The, God, the, the job that God gave people, if we had just stayed in the place where he had put us at the beginning, would be an eternity of planet keeping, of earth stewarding. That's the job God gave us, and he has not revoked that job. Even though we sinned, and even though the world fell into, into a curse and the sin continues to affect our world, God continued, and God continues to make the care of the world and its inhabitants our job. Stewardship is a first principle of our stance towards the world. We can see this even beyond Genesis in Exodus 23, 10 to 11. In the law, God says, plant and harvest your crops for six years, but let the land be renewed and lie uncultivated during the seventh year. Then let the poor among you harvest whatever grows on its own and then leave the rest for wild animals to eat. The same applies to your vineyards and olive groves and everything else that you have. So you see, even after the fall, even after it's cursed, and even after the sin, God says, it's still your job. It's still your job to care for the land, to care for the poor, to care for the wildlife. You still need to, you now need to work to provide for yourselves, but you don't work to provide for yourself at the expense of creation, or at the expense of other people, or at the expense of this world. We still have to care for the land and for the people. It's in his law. He says it again in Leviticus. He says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Throughout the country that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. You see, God says, You don't actually own this thing. You're just here as my guests, as my tenants, and you need to redeem the land. You never permanently own it. You care for it on my behalf. And then he reasserts this ownership in Psalm 24.1. He says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it, all creation and all the people and all the animals. It's all God's. And it's not just Old Testament 
He reasserts it again in Jesus in the New Covenant. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. Everything you see, every person you see, every animal you see, every bird in the sky, every cloud, every star, every supernova was created for Jesus. He owns it all. It's not ours. So very simply, if the earth and all things and all people are God's possession, and if all things were created for Jesus, then as his disciples, we must share God's heart for his creation and his heart for all people. This is the first foundational principle, creation and stewardship. As disciples of Jesus, we must share the same heart towards creation and towards all people that God has. It's our original design. We were designed to be planet keepers. It's established in the law. It's repeated in the Psalms and the prophets. It's confirmed in the new covenant from cover to cover. This is our job as disciples, God says. To be a disciple of Jesus or a follower of God and to reject or neglect any part or person of creation is not to follow the heart of God or his command, even after the fall, even though it's all going to burn. That's God's business, not ours. He's just told us to care for the creation and care for the people in it. So that's the first thing, creation and stewardship, foundation principle. This is what we as disciples, even as humans, were created for, was the care and stewardship of God's creation and all people. But the fall does have an implication then. If if the curse and the sin of the world are not a cause for us to reject the world, then what changes for us in the fall? What changed in our job from Eden to now? Because sin has entered into the world, the curse has fallen upon the world, so something must have changed. And if what has not changed is that we're supposed to reject the world, if we're still supposed to love it and care for it, then what did change in the fall? Well, something did change. This is what changed. I have a repeat there. This is what changed. The fall means we are exiles in this world. So the second foundation principle, the the second guiding position that we have in terms of understanding our role in the world as believers is understanding one common theme here that emerges. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are no longer home, and we are not yet home. In the Old Testament, this is pictured first by Israel as captives in the land of Egypt. And then after God rescues Israel from the land of Egypt, it's again pictured throughout the Old Testament as a series of exile periods in foreign countries as the nation of Israel is carried off into exile, carried off into exile, carried off into exile. A repeated motif meant to teach Israel and to teach us the situation of God's people find themselves in in relation to the world. We are exiles, and we view the world not as our home but as a foreign country in which we are called to live. We are in the world, but not of the world, because it is a strange, we are strangers, and it is a strange land to us. God makes this reality of exile explicit in the verse of Leviticus that we just read. He said, the land is mine, and you are but aliens and my tenants. So it isn't just that the world considers Christians to be aliens, and the world does consider Christians to be aliens, by the way, It's not just that the world considers us to be aliens and foreigners, but God considers us to be tenants who are only stewarding what he owns. God gave his people a pattern to live by even in exile. 
Just because we're in exile doesn't mean God hasn't got a new job for us. Just because Eden fell and we are no longer planet keepers in the original sense, in exile, God gives us as disciples a task, and it is probably best seen in Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Oh, there's a posture. There's a stance for you. Even in exile... God says, here's how you live in exile, even as foreigners in exile. Notice the spheres of life that God says our exile must touch on. He says, build houses and live. Settle down for the long game. This is not going to be temporary. Establish yourself in the place that you are. Put down roots. Grow where God has planted you in exile. If your exile is in Halliburton, then put down roots in Halliburton. God has called you here in exile. God basically says just because you're in exile doesn't mean you can't flourish, doesn't mean you can't grow, doesn't mean you can't have an impact. Build houses and live in exile. He says plant gardens and eat. Work, get a job, produce, and provide. Don't be a drain on the place in which you live. Israel didn't go to Babylon, and it's like, well, we're your problem now. Start the handouts coming. God says, no, you're in exile in Babylon. Plant gardens, work, produce. Be part of the economy. Don't be a drain on the place in which you live. Participate as a person of God. He says, get married and marry your kids off and multiply God basically reaffirms that you still have your first command to be fruitful and multiply in the world. Just because you're not in Eden anymore doesn't mean you don't be fruitful and multiply. Model God's calling to family and increase in numbers. Live out your discipleship life as God's people in family and in marriage and in raising your kids. And then he says, seek the welfare of the city. That can encompass a lot of different spheres of our life. But your command to be good stewards still applies too. Just because you're not in Eden doesn't mean you're not fruitful in multiplying. It also doesn't mean you're no longer a good steward. Seek the welfare of the city. Be a good steward in whatever place you find yourself in exile. Engage in God's people in all the social and communal aspects of exile life. That could be justice or mercy or social engagement or law or politics or education or whatever the element is of participating for the good of the place you are exiled. And notice this, even in Babylon which Babylon, you have to understand, is basically a physical place, a real exile of Israel, but from that point on basically becomes a biblical metaphor for ultimate wickedness and worldliness. Babylon is the most evil, most worldly, most wicked metaphor in the Bible for a place. And God says even Babylon should be cared for by the people of God. Even Babylon should be blessed by Christians. Even Babylon, even in Babylon, disciples, followers of Christ are working for its good. 
And we'll have more of that in just a minute. And this theme of being exiles continues into the New Covenant as well. Just as Israel were considered an exiled people for much of their time under the Old Covenant, Christians are considered set apart from the world, being in the world but not of the world, inhabiting the kingdom of the world but belonging to the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus, in his high priestly prayer to God for his disciples, he says of his disciples, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Why? Because we're exiles, because we're foreigners, because we're strangers. But just as I am not of the world, when we are disciples, we're like Jesus. We're foreigners because our home is heaven. But then he goes on, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And so Jesus says, new covenant reality, I've got disciples, they are strangers, they are aliens, they are exiles, but God, you're not taking them out of their exile, you're leaving them here, you're just protecting them in their exile. That's our stance. We are exiles in the world. And then Peter picks up the same theme. If you read 1 Peter, 1 Peter is basically a book about being an exile in the world. But Peter says, he opens up the book, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He says, all you exiles out there, this is, I'm writing this letter to you. I'm writing this letter to all you exiles. So first, we're stewards and caretakers. That is a foundational level principle for our stance towards the world. We are creation caretakers. We should love the world as God loves the world, but we should not love the world because it's not our home. We are exiles. We don't look to the world for our hope. We don't love the things of the world more than God. Our love of the world is as exiles and as aliens who share the redeeming love of God. And that brings us to the third theological framework. We're creation stewards, but we realize we're exiles here but we're exiles who are for the welfare and for the love of creation that God has and people that God has. And that brings us to that third framework. Disciples' stance towards the world is redemption. God is redeeming the world, and we join him in that redemption. To take a biblical stance towards the world is to engage in the world for its redemption, because that is what God is doing. If you just look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is clear, it is obvious that the biggest possible thematic arc that you can draw over the whole Bible, if you were just to describe what it is in kind of one phrase, the Bible is all about the arc of redemption. God is in the process of redeeming a fallen world, physically, spiritually, creation, and people, The Bible is God's redemptive story. God's entire plan, God's entire posture towards the world is for its redemption. It is contradictory then to be a Christian and to work against God's plan. You cannot be a disciple and say, I am not for the redemption of the world. Our stance as disciples has to be a stance of wanting the world redeemed and joining God in his redemptive work. Very quickly, we see this again going to the Old Testament first in Isaiah. God says, I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. But it's not just the people. Look what he says later on in Isaiah. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I shall 
that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain. God says, I'm redeeming you as a people, and I'm making a whole new heaven and a whole new earth that's going to be eternal. I'm remaking everything, people and planet. And then this redemptive arc is echoed again by Peter in the very first sermon in Acts after Pentecost. He says to the people of Israel, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It's like he's just, you know, repackaging Isaiah 44, 22 there. Repent and return so that your sins can be wiped out, just like God swept away the offenses like a cloud for their redemption. And of course, it was most famously stated, or sorry, Peter goes on to say, it's not just Peter says that to the people of Israel for their redemption, but then 2 Peter 3.13, he says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It's not just here and there, it's everywhere. God is saying, I'm redeeming people and I'm remaking creation. So our stance towards the world, both people and places, is a stance of redemption because it's all being remade new. But this idea of people and place and creation being redeemed is probably most famously stated both together by Paul in Romans 8, 20 to 21. It says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free. There's the redemption of creation from its bondage and corruption, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. There's the redemption of us. So God's going to redeem us, and then all of creation is going to get carried along in our redemption, and we're all going to get redeemed together. Praise God. Praise God. And so a founding principle, a fundamental stance of all disciples towards creation, both physical and people, is a stance of redemption. We take God's stance of redemption towards the world in two primary ways I want to touch on. Regarding suffering, God is a restraint against poverty of person and soul, and so should we be. We should be agents of mercy and justice and welfare. When Jesus began his teaching ministry, it was in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and he proclaimed for himself the prophecy of Isaiah 61 which begins this way, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. This is a disciple's stance towards the world. We are redeeming suffering. As we increase in our image-bearing of Christ as his disciples, so too should our heart be bent more and more towards the mercy and justice that he desires to pour out on the world. We rescue the poor and the broken-spirited. We set free those around us who are captive and bound to so many different kinds of bondages. We proclaim the good news of God's favor and grace, and we also warn of his wrath against sin, and we comfort those who are grieving. Whatever the source of their grief, disciples are comforters. This is the posture of Christ to the world, and as his disciples, it's our posture as well. That means we love the dispossessed, the mental and emotionally ill, the poor, the broken, the addicted, the bound, the refugee, the stranger. It should always be good news that a person has encountered a Christian, never bad news in their life. Encountering Christian leads to paths of redemption, not feelings of regret in people. 
If people encounter a Christian and wish they didn't, then you're doing it wrong. Because nobody should ever regret encountering a disciple of Jesus Christ. It should always be a point of redemption in their life. But too often, the people who are calling themselves Christians are engaging in the society and in the world in such a way as to make the poor poorer, denying relief to the refugee, hostile towards the alien, unsympathetic to the captive, withhold comfort from those in need. That should never be a disciple's stance towards the suffering of the world. So first of all, our posture in joining God in redemption is this way regarding suffering. We are always agents of redemption. But also, of course, regarding salvation, because God is saving as well. God desires to rescue and redeem, and so should we. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, of some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then he says, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The Bible specifically addresses the importance of this question. How are we redeeming our time in the world? What are we doing as disciples in our stance towards the world, and how are we using our time here? The Apostle Paul joins Peter in exhorting, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And I just have to take like one minute to unpack this, because Paul, as he usually does, is being super clever with the words that he uses here in the Greek. It says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Okay, those five words in English is one word in Greek. Okay, and the Greek is ex, can I say it right? Exagorizo. Exagorizo means redeeming, and it's a strengthened form of agorizo, and you may see another Greek word in there that you recognize, the agora. What's the agora? Does anybody know what the agora is? Greek people out there? Come on. The Agora is the marketplace. I think I heard somebody say it. Yeah, there you go. Oh, my smart Alex son. Yeah. See, he comes across as smart, but he's wearing a picture of drums on his shirt, so he remembers why he's here this morning. Burn. Um, so... Ex agorazo, Paul's just so clever here, the Apostle Paul, not me. Uh, The agora is the marketplace, and what this means is it means to make frequent use of the market or to buy. And so Paul is basically saying here, as disciples, you should be out in the marketplace of the world and making frequent use of your time in the marketplace to redeem the world. You should be out in commerce, you should be out in politics, you should be out in PTA meetings, you should be out in the agora redeeming the world and be smart about the use of your time. It's incredible. It's just an incredible way that Paul phrases it. 
Peter says the same thing. He says it a little bit differently. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, there we are again, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Use your time wisely and well. There's one more foundational principle before we come to communion. And it's this, that there is a reward and that God is weighing our works in exile. Why should we as Christians, as disciples, be concerned about what our stance to the world is? All those reasons that I've just said, which are very good, but in addition, we should be concerned as disciples that we get our posture towards the world correctly because God is weighing our works while we are in exile. First Peter 1 17 says, and if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear or with reverent remembrance of God throughout the time of your exile. Right? Remember I said First Peter's just hammering this exile thing? He says, you're exiles. And if you call him father, if you say you're a disciple of Jesus, then you better conduct yourselves well during your time in exile. There's really good news in the gospel for Christians. The good news of the gospel for Christians, for all people, but when we become a Christian is that Jesus takes our sin and we receive his righteousness. And that gospel good news is such good news as Christians, and we focus on it so often that we sometimes as Christians forget the fact that we are still going to be judged. There is a judgment for Christians too. It's not a judgment unto condemnation, but the New Testament is clear that we get our day. And there are consequences to our actions that Peter is referring to here. Even under the grace of the gospel, God will judge us as disciples as we conduct ourselves in exile. Paul says it this way. Peter and Paul, they don't disagree. Each one's work will become manifest. That means apparent or known. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on this foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And I stopped at the good part. The next part says that if it was built out of straw, it gets burnt up and he escapes but is one through the fire. So it's, you escape, but a lot of your works are going to get burnt up. Right? But there is a reward There is a reward for our stance towards the world in exile. We want our stance and response to the world to be in line with God's redemptive love and in line with his calling on our lives because he intends to reward those who accomplish his kingdom work. God doesn't hide the fact that there is a reward for obedience and faithfulness. We could look at all the parables that Jesus told about this. We could could look at uh, more verses in the New Testament. I'm going to skip all of those. But, but C.S. Lewis, I'll just leave you with this quote from C.S. Lewis because he noticed it when he read the Bible. C.S. Lewis says, Nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we follow Jesus contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics. It is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. So another foundational principle about why disciples care about what our stance to the world is, is God's judging, and there's a reward if we get this right. I'll close then quickly. 
the Bible gives us more than ample direction on what Christian stance towards the world should be and why. In short, the care of the physical world is important to God, as is the physical care of people. Understanding our engagement with the world as exiles is instructive. The world is not our home. The things of the world are not our hope, but we must still engage as disciples within every sphere of our life in the world for its redemption. Because God loved the world, and so do we. We are engaging redemptively with the same posture and heart towards the world that God has, and there is eternal recognition and reward as we do so. So as you think about that, maybe there are some spheres or areas of your life, whether it's family or work or politics or Facebook or recreation or whatever it is, that you have not rigorously examined in light of our biblical posture. Because it's easy as disciples to simply carry over into our Christian life the pre-Christian and sub-Christian attitudes and postures that we held before we became followers. It's also easy, even if we've been followers for a long time, to cling to the old love of the world and to adopt stances towards the world that resemble some uh, political or social or cultural tribe that we belong to. And we think, well, well, I'm like them, and I'm going to take the stance that they have rather than I'm a disciple, and I'm going to take the stance that God has. By considering the doctrine of the world, what the Bible has to say about the creation and how we live in it, we discover it speaks again and again of our biblical mandate, our discipleship calling to be stewards and caretakers, to be compassionate missionaries, to be redemptive participants, but to hold lightly to a world that is not our own as we seek a greater reward in the kingdom to come. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this reminder of the doctrine of the world and how we are to have a stance towards it as disciples. Father, we come now to communion. And we just want to be able to pause and take time now to remember the good news that we're sharing, that Christ came, your son, that he lived the perfect life we couldn't live, that he died a sacrificial death to atone for our sins, that he was raised again on the third day as proof of the promise of our justification, our standing before you and his righteousness as he's taken our sin and guilt away in that act, Father. And I pray that for those of us that believe that, who count your son as our savior, that this time of communion would be sweet and encouraging, that we would come before you with generous hearts towards the world, with generous hearts towards each other, with compassion and with mercy on our minds. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.